I'm Steve Fierro. This is from Wall Street to Awakening. I'm delighted to say that my guest today is Peter Anthony Wynn, a good friend and award-winning entrepreneur that has been creating brands since he was 19 years old. An Italian-American like myself and born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, Peter Anthony is a straight talker who does not mince words, yet always comes from a place of love and compassion for others. Peter Anthony is a pioneer in marketing, digital course creation, and personal development, is a highly sought-after speaker and life coach who is the founder and creator of YouWillChangeTheWorld.com, a company that helps everyday and top industry leaders with the likes of Les Brown expand and grow their transformative messages and brands exponentially. I have known Peter Anthony 17 years and have always marveled at his unwavering, relentless drive and stop-at-nothing attitude to help others achieve their tunes and reach their full potential. He is a wingman for humanity who has a heart. <laughs> Peter, you got me laughing. All right. He's a wingman for humanity who has a heart of gold and is clearly on a mission to change the world. And I'm happy to have him here with us today to share his story and insight. Peter, thanks for taking the time and thanks for the faces to make me laugh. <laughs> Hey, Stephen, how are you? Thank you for having me on today. I'm super, super excited. Man, I hear that your, uh, your podcast is absolutely killing it. So well done, man. And thank uh, again, thank you for having me on today. I'm, I'm excited. That's so, cool. This is so cool that we're doing this. You're, you're a hero yeah, of mine. It, it's, oh, imagine that. That's, a, that's, um, that's a big word, hero, right? It's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things. It's a huge responsibility to share information um, because people act on information and they, they either act, react, or lack of action is still action. Yeah. So whenever you're in the information exchange business, um, I think you have a big responsibility to the people that you're working with to, to make sure that what you're saying can be applied to them. To, you, to the current audience and can and that when they do take action, react or not react, that it puts them in a better position, um, that it allows them to have more objectivity and, um, and maybe, maybe sometimes a little clearer understanding of their own purpose and mission. Yeah. So, um, so I'm excited to learn today. Um, what, what, do, what do you have in store for me, Stephen? Well, this is about you. This is about your journey and, and your insights. I, I mean, from the moment I met you, you had this can-do attitude. It just you know, exuded from you oozed coach, you oozed mentor. And I was like, oh, shit, I better not talk to him. He's going to hold me to a higher standard. You know, <laughs> it's like, it's a, I mean, like you just so have fun. this, you have this, it's, just who you are. And it's like, I, I wanted to say, have you always been like this? Like, I think for me, it seems natural. I know you've been through a lot of development stuff, but you know, from a young age, were you like this? So it's, it's an interesting contemplative question, right? I mean, you know, what, who we, who we are versus where we came from and, and what, what created that that element and you know obviously it's confidence right you, you you do one thing and you get a little confidence and then the, you do do it again and you might develop more confidence so you know we both grew up in in a very similar area you know we're both Italian American we both came from Long Island New York you know even though I started out in Brooklyn like most Italians right you know you get dumped off the boat and you're, you're going into one of the five boroughs 
but at the end of the day, you know, I could ask you the same question about lacrosse. You, you know, you were a really amazing lacrosse player when we were in high school and played for an amazing team. And, you know, what, what, when, when I put the stick in my hand, I was good, but it wasn't amazing. But I, I, I loved it. But, you know, there was that one moment where, you know, I completely missed the goal and my team lost confidence in me. And somebody else took that same shot, made the goal. Now, if we were both to take 100 shots, we might have each made the goal 30 times. We might have had the same percentage. But the interesting part is, in life, when you, when you take that shot, you, you're developing confidence or you're developing character or you're developing um, an idea of who you are, even though um, your percentage chance might be the same. We both are given a coin. We both flip it. I call heads, you call heads. Mine lands on tails, yours lands on heads. You feel in that moment you're luckier. I feel I'm unlucky. And, and the, the idea that we attach to the outcome of that sort of shapes our lives. I, you know, one, you know, I was shaped because, you know, out of whatever I thought about, the, the same, you know, every hero's journey is the same, right? You know, we all started out, we were, we were poor. We, woke up, we walked uphill to school both ways. You know, we wore our shoes till there were holes in them. Um, that, that's what you tell your kids. The, yeah. the truth is, you know, your hero's journey starts just through confidence. It's just something I, I think it, it, it happens. I, I certainly wasn't always confident. I, 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 I couldn't get a date. I never had a girlfriend in high school. I didn't have a girlfriend in college. Wow. I mean, it was, it was really, 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 you know, like, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't close that deal until I was 20 years old. Wow. And, and that really shaped that, that shapes you. It shifts and shapes a man's confidence. Oh. It wasn't because I, yeah, it just wasn't because I, I, you know, I look at pictures of me now and I'm like, God, what a good looking kid. Yeah. But when I, when I was living in that kid's body, I didn't see, when I looked in the mirror, a good looking kid, I saw somebody who identified with their Italian American background because that's what their half of their parents told them. But the other half, which was a stepfather, an adopted stepfather, was was Irish, but but that other real half, the uh, the the organic half of me, was not Italian American, and I had a very Latin Asian influence. So I looked more Asian than I did Italian. So when I would tell my other Italian kids I was Italian, they were like, "No, you're not." <laughs> so 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 it was so you 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 have you it's develop. amazing. Your DNA is, I guess, not totally Italian, but you're you're totally Italian. Oh, I'm a paisan, you know, but it's, you know, it's one of those funny things. Like you meet those Italian kids from Boston and they sound like Irish kids with yeah. their Boston accents, yeah. you know, or you, you, you meet in, you know, you, you, you meet, you know, an Indian fellow from Germany who grew up in Germany and has a total German accent and you're looking at an Indian fellow or an, yeah. you know, Indian Asian, yeah. you know, and you're like, oh my goodness, you know, yeah. so, so what we see, hear, and feel is interpreted by what's been implanted in us and how the world 
initially interacts with us is based on what's been implanted on them. And I think success comes through the understanding of how to either utilize or change perception, how to utilize the perception that they perceive, how do I utilize that I become successful, or they're, they're having a perception, how do I change that perception? Yeah. Okay. And, and, and that's, you know, that, that's my, yeah. my stupid little hero's journey. You know, I learned to use humor, I learned to use the idea of confidence. And um, uh, did, did your parents have one, a, did your parents have a scarcity programming on you? Because mine did. I mean, God bless them. They did the best. Oh, they could, yeah, of course. It was I mean, a lack of money. Paper boomers. Yeah, our parents grew up. They were born into the depression. Their parents had a scarcity mindset. My mother grew up. She didn't have a high school education. She she left high school legally at 16, but she was probably out right around 14 helping on the and, and you know, it sounds stupid, right? She was helping on the farm. Mm-hmm. She, was, she, she lived on Long Island, but they moved from Hell's Kitchen to the outskirts of Long Island where they, you know, they had whatever it was, eight, 10 acres, and they had chicken farms. That's what she grew up in. And, wow. and they would get the chicken feed, and the chicken feed would become, they would, she would get to go to the store with her dad and pick out the chicken feed bags and be, because they use those feedbacks at patterns and that's where the kids would make their clothes. Um, so did you, do you think, um, you know, right. I always feel like you, I've never seen you look at the glass as half empty. I mean, I don't know if that's just, you force that or you see everything as we can make this work or because uh, I had to work on reprogramming the way I saw things because I was conditioned I'm not blaming anyone, but a lot of my conditioning was I didn't see potential everywhere. I didn't see opportunity everywhere. I didn't see an empty Which piece of land. Which is funny, right? Because you grew up in Manhasset, if I, if I recall, yeah. right? Manhasset, Long Island. Yeah. But right? we, Which is we the, you know, like the most expensive real estate on Long Island. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But we had no money. I grew up in Levittown, which is definitely not the most expensive real estate on Long Island. No. But you, you know, know your I grew parents, up where my parents could barely afford to live. Yeah, but you know, it was the, the house had a lot of high volatility, arguing and stuff. And uh, well, I think, it, and and that's part of our culture as well, right? As as we argue loud, we're boisterous. Yep. So the two things, you know, your your family may dealt with it maybe a little differently. My family was very judgmental um, and very. Matter of fact, I'm, you know, the, the, the narrative with my stepfather was, you know, only rich people can do that. You, you, you can't ever run for office. You're not rich. That, um, we the, have no money. That's my, my mother. Um, God bless her. It was, she didn't do it directly. It wasn't said in specific words. It was like, those peop, those, that's for those people over there. Don't dream too yeah. big. Exactly. My mom, you know, I remember... You know, I tell a funny story when I met Tony Robbins in 83. I met Tony because my friend at the time, his father was a chiropractor and terrible dad. It was a really not, not a terrible dad, but he just wasn't a present dad. Let's just say that. And he, you know, he got divorced and he got the four boys. And, you know, this, this gentleman became my friend and he, he became a good friend 
because we were both misfits, right? So we were both in science class in 10th grade and no one picked either one of us. We were standing on two different sides of the room to be a lab partner. And, you know, boom. So we became lab partners and we became friends. And his father was very involved with Tony Robinson back in the 70s and 80s, I guess in 80, 81. And by the 80, time 83 rolled around when I was in, um, I had dropped out of Oneonta or transferred out actually. Maybe you might call it dropped out. And, you know, because I didn't want to go back. It's but I was cold. on a 3 2. Yeah, I was on a 3 2 program with, with um, Stony Brook University. So I, I just moved into being at Stony Brook full time in a pre law program. And then it was that year that I met Tony. But when I came back to Long Island, I was a disc jockey. I was, you know, I was naughty. I was an Italian kid and I was, and I was being influenced by my family that was still living in Brooklyn and still influenced in Brooklyn and the Bronx and my, my, um, my mother's family names um, were Bonanno, you know? So wow. even though I grew up with an adopted name of Wayne, my mother's side was was Furios and Bananos, but mostly Bananos. And so I was hanging out with those guys um, that you read about that maybe you don't read about because they <laughs> all got whacked in front of stars. Right? Wow. Uh, so, so you're hanging out with those people. And, and I say it all the time, you know, when your uncle Tony or your uncle John tells you, hey, take this paper bag down to Ferraro's on 86th Street, give it to the baker and, and, and pick up my cannolis. You don't know, and I'm being 100% serious, you don't know, you don't question your family as to what's in the bag. Yeah. You just think that you're taking a bag to Ferraro's. Of course. To the bakery and you're picking up the cannolis for family dinner. Of course. That's all you think. Yeah. That's all you think. You don't know why they, they, they know you and they let, don't make you wait online. You don't know why. You think it's because you're, you're cool and your uncle gets special cannolis. Yeah. And so you, you're, you're, you're gradiated into, into a culture and a life and an idea. And we all gradiate ourselves, Stephen. You know, so my parents were gradiated into okay, that's only for wealthy people. And my mom pulled out of that life and then really went against it by marrying someone who was of Latin descent instead of Italian descent. So she was ostracized from the life. And then, you know, then I walk in and I'm like, you know, why wouldn't I want to hang out with my Uncle Vic? Like my Uncle Vinny. Like, why wouldn't I? I mean, like, he wears great fedoras. He smokes an incredible cigar. So what do I do today? I don't wear the fedoras but I smoke cigars, I drink scotch, just like my Uncle Vinny. I don't know where I get that, other than that's what I do with my life. Yeah. And I think that's infectious with with Italian, because my Italian uncle left the biggest impression on me, Uncle Sandy, and he he played gin all day, didn't pay his taxes, he had white patent leather shoes, and always- He's probably running numbers. He was a used car salesman, Sandy the Credit King was, in Flushing. Yeah. So, oh, okay, cool. So, so I mean, I when he died, you know, him dying was a big, when he died, I looked up to him so much, or I loved him so much. When he died, he died of a heart attack. That was really, I, I always questioned religion and everything, but 
I remember looking at him in the coffin and I kissed his cheek and I remember it was really hard, right? So in 1993, in 93, what, I was 30 years old and 29. And I, in that moment, I'm like, I got to figure this out. Where is Uncle Sandy? You know, this guy just so full of life. What's this all about? I mean, that was a big, that was sort of a, a trigger, even though I always had these ideas in my head. But that, we're, we're going to go way off course if we start getting into that. But I was just trying to say how infectious my uncle's, how Italian relatives can be quite infectious. And, that, and I think that, so the, the, the gearing back to the answer to your question is, we model ourselves after the people who made us smile, and we model ourselves after the people who made us frown. And that's what we do instinctually. If we're, if you're afraid of money, you're modeling someone else's fear of money. If you're afraid of a situation, you're modeling the situation. You're, you're grabbing something and, and creating a new foundation. So I'll go back to our lacrosse example. You made the net. I didn't make the net. You believe you're going to make the net again because you're modeling after that. You saw somebody make the net. They celebrated. You celebrated. You, and you've studied enough NLP, when you celebrate after the victory, you're, you're locking that into your physiology. When you frown after the miss, you're locking that into your physiology. It just, here's the thing. Was the first thing a celebration or a frown? You're flipping the coin. You're flipping the coin. You have a 50% chance of heads or tails. You call heads, it lands tails. You're disappointed. That's the lock. You lock in disappointment. Yeah. Someone else gets, they get the tails. They lock in the celebration and they build upon that. And it takes, really, it takes a tremendous amount of understanding in human behavior, in your own personal human behavior, to shift that, to say, no, I want to be the guy who's celebrating. I don't want to be the guy who's frowning. And, and I made that shift when I dropped out of school, I was a disc jockey. So I was getting a lot of recognition as a disc jockey in nightclubs on Long Island and in New York City. But when I, when I met Tony, I started doing hair because I couldn't... Uh, the truth is, I, I have a really sexy story about it, Stephen. But the truth is, I didn't have the money to go to law school. I knew it. I, there was no way I was going to be able to, to, to... I would barely finish my undergrad. And I, would be, and I was in so much debt finishing that, that I was like, what am I going to do? I'm going to, I'm going to get a job. And what I really wanted was an opportunity. And I don't know why that word stuck. But all of my family, when you're growing up in Brooklyn, everybody's bakers, hairdressers, police officers, or goombas, right? That, that's, that's what I looked at. So I was like, okay, cool. I don't want to be a goomba. I don't want to be a cop. I don't want to really bake. What other what other storefronts are on 86th Street that I see myself in? Mm. That was the question. And I said, well, I'm gonna maybe maybe I'll own a salon. That looks kind of cool because I, I was so afraid of girls. I said, well, then they'd have to talk to me to get a job. They have to talk to me to get their hair cut. Yeah. And that and, and, and it was it was something so silly. And for the first four years, Stephen, I made no money as a hairdresser. None. 
I mean, like less than $100 a week. For four years, I suffered and endured. My skill sets were off the charts. I won every contest I entered. So I started to get the confidence and the skills, but I didn't have the confidence in the communication. I was still geeky. And I realized that people were seeing a poor student and not the best hairdresser in the world. And then I show a picture of, I grew out my hair, I changed my marketing, I changed the understanding because I said, in the beginning of the conversation, people see you and they project onto you their perception of what they believe you to be. And you live up to that sometimes or down to it. You react to it for sure. And your reaction could be positive, negative. Um, it could be hurtful to toward, it could be hurtful internal, external. It could be positive, internal, external. You've got to make the decision. But the reaction is, is a trigger and it happens in a split second. You might not recognize it. So I was recognizing like, man, it's hard to get a client. I was like, why don't, you know, like I won, you know, I couldn't bring my trophies and put them on my station and walk around and say, hey, I just won this trophy. You know, so I was like, what, what do I do? And then one thing led to another. I, I, I started to understand that perception is reality. And I, and I met this young woman, she changed my life. With one statement, I was DJing a party for my best friend in a place called Holbrook. And I was, was the same year I met Tony. And it was the same year that I dropped out of Stony Brook and became a hairdresser. And but I met her first and what she said to me, she was this beautiful, beautiful, very popular girl in my high school, but two grades below. So I was out of high school. She was in her senior year and I was DJing a party for them. And I just got back from college. I was making money with my DJ company. So I get this Halloween party and I see her and she said she had, you know, drinking age was 18 then. So she had a little something to drink and she was like, kind of like, you know, and I was like, okay, cool. And she said to me, I said to her, why, why did you, you know, why did you go out with me? And she's like, are you kidding me? Every girl wanted to go out with you. You're a DJ, you're hot. I was like, what? That's not me, right? I didn't see me, myself as that. And she said, and you were arrogant. And arrogance is a turn on. Now, what she mistook for arrogance was not confidence. It was like, hey, man, I own these tables. I own this record collection. Don't touch my records, right? <laughs> Don't, you know, so she mistook that for arrogance. That was her belief. Like, hey, these are my records. I was confident about my ownership of the equipment and the product. And I was confident about my ability to get the group to dance. I was confident. I've been doing it for years. So my confidence was mistaken for arrogance in another area. And this is something that people do. When you're an expert in one thing, it's called transference. People transfer, and we do it with celebrities all the time. If Oh, you're, you're Brad Pitt, so tell us what you think about Donald Trump. What the hell would Brad Pitt know about politics? <laughs> More than you or I. You know, like, did you, you, there's no reason for his opinion to be worth more than anybody else's opinion on Facebook. Agreed. But we transfer that to human beings. And she just transferred something, believed it, 
and then was massively attracted to me in that moment. And that made me understand that if I could, if I could utilize that, and I didn't use the lesson, but I always remembered it. And then all of a sudden, one day I wasn't getting what I wanted. And I was like, I've got all this confidence in my skills, just like I had confidence in what I did as a disc jockey. But I had all this confidence in my hair skills. And I was like, but people aren't seeing me that way. How do I take ownership of my situation? How do I take ownership, for lack of a word, of my station or area? How do I command that? Because if someone walks into your space and they command you, you've lost. Yeah. I was tired of losing. Wow. So I just started taking ownership. And, and then that ownership, it, you know, it, 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 it turns into bravado, right? which turns into whatever. I don't know how many books I've written, eight or nine, you know, it, it, it produced. I think we're about to hit the six-figure mark. Like we've produced well into the five figures of lessons and content over the last 30 plus years for, for other people. Um, so you, you wind up in that space and you infuse your beliefs into every piece of content that you create or make with somebody else. And, and yeah, that's but it, you, man. That, that's the big story. You, um, I mean, you're a doer and you've been standing there with nothing in your pocket, nothing in your hands. And I don't know, some people would crumble under the, uh, the, the weight of that and not move forward under the enormous pressure of being of having to shift over and over and over i i mean yeah i'm not i I, so I want to i want to i want to crumble days there are days <laughs> before we um we don't have much time because you're on a tight schedule but the we'll, we'll have to talk again but the um that i i, I uh, heard in one of your youtubes that the book tough times don't last but tough people do influenced you. And I always thought like Tony was a big influence and, and stuff. So in some ways you mentioned this book was, was quite an impact. It had quite an impact on you. Um, Reverend Robert Schuler, it had a huge impact. It was the day that that book was gifted to me when I was opening my first salon. And I had read, I, I was a vivacious reader. I just read and read and read and read. When I learned finally how to get past my dyslexia and actually read, even though it took me longer, um, I, I started to understand more and I stopped watching TV or doing anything else. Um, but that book was a gift from my mother. Oh. And she didn't have any money to give me to help me with my first business she didn't have, um, certainly didn't have any wisdom. She'd never owned a business. She was massively fearful that I'd given up my job. But she thought this, and, and it, she never read the book. <laughs> so, but the title sounded good. Sounds good. Yeah, and I read the stories, and they were just little, little, little vignettes and, and looks into people's lives where everything was lost, and they persevered. They found a way to thrive in adversity and the one piece of wisdom my mom shared with me was that you can thrive through adversity you know and and i and in that moment i learned how to be creative i took all the lessons from all the books because i didn't have enough money to finish the job so i took all the lessons from all the books and i started applying them 
Okay. And, so, and, 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 and that's, that's it. Okay. So we have about five minutes. Why don't you tell us about you? you we have about the... eight, 17 minutes. I just, oh. I just texted my client. So we're good. Oh, We've okay. got plenty so, of time. All right. So we have so some you can more edit time. this up. So did, I, I'm curious, did you ever speak about to Tony, like in 2003, when I met you in, in those circles, did you ever say, and go circle back to that time where you were cleaning his area to get into his seminar? Yeah, we remember it differently. <laughs> um, you know, but Tony was surrounded, you know, I didn't spend a lot of time directly with Tony in the first 10 years that I would go to his seminars. Um, I, I, but, but his salespeople knew of me because in, by, by 19, so I met him in 83, by 88, I, I, I had adopted a new mentor. So I was taking Tony's courses and I was going maybe once a year, twice a year. But I still hadn't opened my own business. And this is an interesting story. I don't know if I ever shared it with you. Um, I found a mentor in the salon industry. So I found, I understood the mentorship. I understood the, the transformation that had to happen externally. I had made all of the efforts to become really good at the craft, then I needed to start to make the effort to become good at the business. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, so being good at the craft doesn't make you good at the business. It's mm -hmm. two completely different things. Being good at the business doesn't mean shit about the craft. You, you, you need to understand both sides of that coin. Um, so I wanted to start to understand business and I met a gentleman, he was in, in I wanna say it was 87, 88. I don't remember, um, when, but he was on the cover of Inc. Magazine and he owned a salon group called Visible Changes. And this gentleman, John McCormick was from Queens. His wife, Marianne McCormick, owned a salon in Massapequa. Wow. And it was the first salon I ever worked at, but she had known that she had sold it already. And they moved in the 70s, in the late 70s, they moved to Texas during the SNL. And John was a police officer who started day trading, made millions, leaves being a police officer, moves to Wall Street, and then bets on some SNLs in the, right? This is your gig, right? And, and they crash in like 79 or 80 or something. There's like this big crash, yep. right? And he's very vested in oil in Texas. And he get and he gets dumped. He goes be, for, like in the in in the seventies and eighties, being worth two three million dollars was a was like being worth thirty million today, course, right? Yeah. So here's this guy. He's the talk of Wall Street. This killer investor was a cop, married to a hairdresser, who owns a little salon, right? And super super pretty lady. So he's just you know big guy. So he loses it all but watching his wife's business, he says, I bet we could systemize that. He, he and his wife moved to Houston, Texas, where the SNLs went, they dumped. And, they, and, one of the, and he researches this. And one of their big holdings was malls, right? Indoor malls. 
And he contacts them and says, listen, you have no traffic. You have no traffic. No one's shopping. No one's coming in. And you, you got to hold on to the properties. It's going to bounce back. But here's what I want. I want you to build me. I'm paraphrasing very big, broad strokes. So it's not completely accurate. But he gets them to build him five salons in five different malls and roll out. And they front the money. And they forego rent. He's a smart guy. Smart guy. Turns that into a $60 million empire annual in the 80s in hairdressing. I seek him out and he becomes my business mentor. Inadvertently, unbeknownst to me, at the same time, he's mentoring Tony Robbins on money. I don't know this, Stephen. Fast forward, my salon, right? Now, I knew that he had Tony at his events. It's, the name of the salon was Visible Changes. I knew Tony had come to the events and talked to them about mindset and all of this stu other stuff. But he's got these people jazzed up, right? And I was like, okay, cool. Well, I know Tony. It's completely separate. I'm going to bring Tony, you know, I'm going to bring, I can't bring Tony in because I didn't have a big enough salon, but I'm going to bring my people to Tony. So I start bringing every year, twice a year, wherever he is playing, we're going to sell at the time he still had sales seminars and we ate them up. He was still doing, you know, so he had the sales stuff and then he had the mindset stuff. So we were doing the UPWs, the whole nine yards. Then in two, thousand one right after 9-11 so 9-11 was september 2001 we'd won a whole bunch of things this is another great story about john mccormick that i'll share with you um but my now my salon's number one in the country five years in a row we're killing it um from a business standpoint i've implemented all john's stuff and john was just a huge like a huge figure in my life but we didn't have a relationship. He was somebody that I'd speak to. I modeled after I'd show up at his seminar. I was his best student. And, um, but we didn't have a relationship. There was too much of an age gap. And I was just still an Italian kid. Right. Okay. But I remember the first time I seen him, I'm like, John, 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 I opened my salon. And he's like, Oh, no one's going to take you seriously until you do a million dollars. 18 months later, I did my first million. He's, you know, which was put me in the top 1%. And he's like, no one's going to, a million dollars. Anybody could do that. He's like, you got to win an award. I go out and I win Salon of the Year, Modern Salon Magazine. He's like, I see him again at another conference. He's like, you only won one. Like anybody of any value, anybody can win one. You got to repeat, right? You, you know, I'm thinking like, I got to be like the Jordan of hair. This guy right? sounds great, man. I repeat. He's like, you got to three-peat. And uh, I was like, and then finally on the fourth one, I was like, listen, dude, I, I, I said, John, hey, he's like, hey, I said, um, I said, listen, I got a bone to pick with you, man. Now I'm mature. I'm a millionaire. And I'm like, you know, I got to tell you something, man. You were so unsupportive. I said, every time I saw you, you'd say, whatever I did was never good enough. Whatever. He's, I, I said, you know, you were the, you, you, you were just, why would you treat somebody so poorly? He said, excuse me? He said, you are so ungrateful. He said, let me ask you a question. 
Would you have moved? You were when you made five hundred thousand. Were you thinking a million? He was like, you were 20, wow. 23 or twenty four years old. You weren't thinking about a million. You were thinking about getting your dick wet. That's paraphrasing, but that's sort of what he said. Okay. He's like, you weren't thinking about that. There was so much money flowing that you wouldn't have pushed yourself to get to the next level. I pushed you to get to the next level. And when you got to that level, were you thinking? Did you even know that there was something called Salon of the Year? And did you know I was a judge? And then I was like, and, and then you, and it's like, he was like a little arrogant piece of shit, right? He was, that's, that's all I was hearing as I said this, I'm shrinking. And then, and he's like, you never would have gone for those other awards. Wow. He's like, you want to condemn me? He's like, I made you. And it just, then my respect for him was like, my coaching everything in my life changes. This is by about 99, 2000. 2001, I get a phone call from Tony's team. Hey, Tony's going to be in. He wants, he's got this new thing going on. Tony's flying to the Middle East. Do you want to go? He, he, and I was like, yeah. He said, well, Tony will be in Jersey at a UPW. He, you know, meet him backstage and I'm going, so I, I go to UPW says, oh, you know what? I'll go to the UPW again. I go to that UPW. I'm like, this is kind of cool. I bring up, I, I bring about 15 people from my staff who needed it. And I go backstage to, and it is this platinum program, but I didn't know it was this platinum program at the time. And I'm flipping through the brochure and who's in the freaking brochure. John and Marianne McCormick. Holy and I bust through and that Tony was with Sage at the time. They were fresh and Sage is trying to cock block me. And I was like, and I'm, I'm like, you know, you know, trying to move around her. And I'm like, listen, man, I, you know, I know who you are, but I'm going to, you know, Tony, I've known Tony longer than you've been alive. Probably move out of the way. <laughs> And, you know, she's trying, because everybody wants Tony's energy. I'm like, Tony, what is this? He's like, what is what? What's, what, what? He's like, you're, you're very intense right now. <laughs> He's like, you got to change your state, brother. I was like, what is this, man? How did John McCormick get it? He's like, John's been one of my best friends and mentors for 20 years. I'm like, I'm just finding this out now. Oh, wow, man. That's He's like, Peter, John started mentoring me. In, I want to say it was like 82, just before I met Tony. So I've got the two philosophies moving towards me from two different vantage points of my two greatest influences were John McCormick and Tony Robbins up until that moment. Wow. I and I was like, wow. John McCormick I just was mentored Tony? was one of Tony's mentors. Tony was in a very interesting group. I never really got the gist of it. But Tony, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Pat Riley, John McCormick, they had their own little mentoring group. And he sort of talks about it when he talks about, well, they came in, you know, when he's pitching you and NLPing you on the stage to become part of Platinum. He had it in his thing. Oh, yes. And, uh, you know, they asked me to get on this jet and it was like thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 and I didn't have the money and I 
put it on two credit cards, right? Which is telling you, if you don't have the money, put it on two credit cards. Weeks, <laughs> you know, like he's, he's completely positioning you. And, yeah. and I was like, you know, so he's pitching from the stage platinum and telling you the story. But in the story, he talks about, and there's aspects of truth. It's not completely accurate, but there's aspects of truth to it. And no story is ever accurate when you need to position it on stage to drive sales. So it's not, you know, but the essence of that story is true. He has, you know, he got on these planes with these ballers and there was no, the only fee was we're going to chip in for the plane. You know, we all cover our weight and our weight is weighty. You know, it's 40,000 each. If you can't roll out the 40,000, then you don't get to be on the plane. We'll sell yeah. your seat to somebody else. We don't care. <laughs> you know, so there was no, there was no action to, to share in the group, but that action was cool. Wow. So in learning that, you're like, wow. So that really put the seed in my head for you will change the world as a way to attach mentorship so that you could see the multiple influences um, because we're generally influenced from the same source. We don't recognize it. We don't understand it. We don't know it even. But that, that commonality and energy resonates through multiple sources and then you choose you're choosing multiple sources without sometimes recognizing that they're influenced from the same source you know so it doesn't matter what it is if it's you know if it's conspiracy theories if it's religion if it's you know if it's politics it doesn't matter you're you're resonating from people who you resonate with and that influences you it doesn't make it right or wrong you don't know but you just gravitate towards that towards that psychology so it was interesting. And that, that was, um, yeah, I don't know if you knew that, but John McCormick, I when I saw him in the brochure in 2002, I was like, what's going on? And then that's when we wound up in Morocco. I want to say like literally 40 days later, I'm in the middle of the Sahara <laughs> with Tony on a sand dune in midnight talking about life. Yeah. And saying, geez, Tony, you know, we've come pretty far in whatever it was. And, you know, like. Yeah, that happened to me years. in Prague. I, I ended yeah. up in Prague talking to Tony. Um, yeah. And that is trippy. I mean, yeah. we have what, three minutes? Yeah, we're three, six, eight. Okay. So the uh, just your 21 day challenge. And I, I'm curious. Is the resistance a big thing you have to help your students with to get through that fear that almost of being something more that they can be? Is that what comes up a lot in these, when you're doing these, you know, the 21 day challenge and stuff like that? That's a, that's a great question. The 21 day challenge is interesting because I don't do them often. Mostly I'm, I'm focused on my 90 day champions league, okay, um, which is very similar process to the 21 day challenge without it's the same level of intensity, but it's a, it's a different, um, it's a, it, it's a little bit different. And in the, in the 90 day challenge, which is interesting is we meet once a week and the 21 day challenge, we meet three times a week. Oh. So, and, and it, it's, it's, it, it's intense, but most people, you know, they think that they're going, you know, you can't master something in 21 days. You can't master it in 90 days. What you can do is start to be introduced to concepts and ideas that you're going to have to work on and practice. And that's the important thing. 
Hmm. So it's about pushing people through their limiting beliefs and all that and, and getting out of fear and into action. Yeah, you want to get them out of fear. You want to get them into action and let them move forward. Um, but, you know, it's, it's the support mechanism. And, you know, you have to attract the right people to the right moment, right? So the right people are um, the people who are ready to take action. And okay. the people who are, you want them to resist, but you want them to find a way to overcome. Yeah. You know, so, so you want to find, you know, you want to find the right type of students for your product. That's the key. It's not, it's not the product. You know, I think that there's a product for everybody. It's finding the right students, the ones who, who are going to give you this. Who are ready. You well, when you believe that I believe what you believe, mm. we're aligned. Yeah. I'll say it again. When you believe that I believe what you believe. Okay. It doesn't have to be true. Yeah. It has to be what you believe me to believe that's in alignment with what you believe. So okay. in those moments, it's about finding, it's, it's about marketing in a way that allows people to believe that you believe what they believe and, and for them to want that. Wow. And then those people will have a better chance of moving through the ecosystem. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes total sense. But yeah, I was, so it, yeah. No, I was wondering, like, uh, this is sort of changing the subject, but it's similar. Like, shadow work is a big thing in spirituality right now. Like, you know, mm -hmm. facing your shadow and maybe a trauma that happened when you were five. We don't know what it could be. It could be missing that shot when you were playing lacrosse, right? So, That's it. like, are you... Do you, sometimes I get the feeling you, you can, you feel maybe we can push through that and not have to do the shadow work. Or do you feel like to get to the other side, you do have to, I guess, integrate that stuff. Do you want the esoteric answer? I know we only have about five minutes left on the podcast, but do you want the esoteric answer? Because I have a great one. You, you, have the, you have the floor for the next five minutes. Actually, I want you to close, okay? <laughs> All right. Well, first and foremost, I need everybody to subscribe to Stephen Fierro's podcast. This is, um, we're super excited to have him. Um, we're going to be sharing this on You Will Change the World as well. So, Stephen, thank you for having me as a guest. I, I really totally enjoyed being with you this, after, this morning. It's afternoon for you. It's, it's this morning for me. Um, so here's, here's my belief about facing your shadow. I actually believe that you are, are your shadow. I don't believe that you're facing your shadow. I believe that the shadow is controlling the physicality. I believe that which we cannot see controls that which we do. And within that, um, the, the acceptance of when I turn around and face my shadow, that what I'm really finally seeing is myself, is the, it, are, the, are the ideas that are pulling the strings to my own personal puppet, right? You never see the puppeteer. Is, it, is the puppet the puppeteer? Is, you know, is, the, is the puppeteer the shadow? No, the puppeteer is actually controlling the puppet. Yeah. So I believe that the shadow actually controls the, the, the entity. Okay. And, you know, so I think in the, 
it, some of the philosophies that I read, not all of them, and I'm not going to start quoting them, but in some of the philosophies I read, I think they've got it wrong. I think they've got it out of syntax, meaning they want you to go turn around and deal with things from you are your past. Your, your, your present is an accumulation of your past. And until you change the present, your future is determined. So if your present is an accumulation of the past, your present is now then thus it's determining your future. So until you understand the past and can change the stories of the past and manipulate them to create a new present, you will never create a new future. Wow. Makes sense. So when I look at that, I'm saying, okay, cool. It's not, it's not the shadow. It's the ideal. It's the understanding. It's the definition. And we, we learn a little components of this in NLP, but we've never put it together in such a way that, it, you know, in my work, we, I put it together like, like, listen, you are your past, which means I already know your future. Because until you change the ideas of your past to, to manufacture a new present, until you make that decision, you'll never have a new future. So you're reprogramming the shadow. You, you, what, well, you are the shadow. You've always been the shadow. You are the puppeteer. You're pulling your own strings. You think it's separate entities. But, but in order not. to self, self, in order to stop self sabotage and you know all that, what do you do? You, I mean, I don't it, use the word sabotage, okay? Because I don't believe I believe it's uh, in order to in in order to interrupt protecting yourself, the belief that you're protecting yourself. You don't want to you don't want to destroy the mechanism that's designed to protect you. Now, we call it words like sabotage so that we can get angry and want to get into state, but it's not. It's protection. So if, we can, if, if, you, if you contemplate the overall, if you approach yourself with love and compassion, you have a better opportunity to change. If you approach your, your old self with anger and frustration because you're not getting what you want, you'll never change. Yeah, you're just going to introduce you're going to reintroduce more anger and frustration, which is going to create a new new mechanism that's not self serving to the actual goal, when you're in alignment with self with humility and love. So then for someone, a good direct through paths, the maybe limiting beliefs of the of the shadow is to raise your standards, but you have to believe you can't just raise your standards. You sort of have to have a, a sense of belief that you can have that raised standard or can you, can you kid so, yourself? So the, 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 well, there's two things and, and, and I'm very wordsmithy, right? I don't believe you're ever going to raise standards because the, in the introduction of the idea of raising standards, that means at some point you had low standards, which dilutes your self-esteem. So why would I say raise my standards? I don't even want to change my standards. Standards are standards. They're universal. Is there a standard for love? Of course there's a standard for love. But, but why would I compare myself? And as soon as I get into the ideal or idea or the philosophy or the, 
examination of comparison, I become judgmental. In judgmental, there's no room for unconditional love. That's right. So the the word standard doesn't, it's, it, it can't be in, in the mechanism for enlightenment. And if you're trying to move towards enlightenment, if you're trying to add helium, the helium of life is love. The helium of life is forgiveness, actually. True. Unconditional love is, is enveloped in forgiveness. So if you're, if you're looking to increase your energy, increase your ability to forgive yourself for yeah. choosing ideals that were lead weights on your balloon. Yeah. And, wow. and then just recognizing them and releasing them and just saying, Hey man, you know, I didn't need that. Let me cut the cord. I know, I know it kept me grounded and it kept me feeling safe. And I, and I honor that because I wasn't ready to, ex I wasn't ready to excel. I wasn't ready to fly. So I'm grateful. So, so in honoring those things in, in looking at them and saying, man, that was, I'm so blessed that you protected me for so long, but I think I'm ready. That's amazing. I think I'm ready. The gratitude you know, thing and the forgiveness are just gigantic. Changes. It shifts. It shifts. Like even right now, I can feel myself welling up because, because that, that when you're, when you're embracing yourself and you're calling the light of forgiveness and unconditional love to your, to the energy and to the, the quantum level to your to to the cells in, inside of you, you you have nothing but release. It's and just so, it's, so and the shift rise. is so subtle. It's right there if you allow it, and then immediately it dispels. Fear. Not allow, allow again another word, right? And and we're, and these words are are they they fall into judgment. Allowing means if I allow it, I have to judge it. Is it good or bad? Okay. Encourage. Yeah. If you know, what happens when we we substitute the word allow with the word encourage? Okay, that's great. We don't have time for this, but I'm going to ask this, and I don't even know what this question really is. But in a way, to dispel pain and suffering, you need gratitude and forgiveness. And in a way, it's a everything about achieving is is a slight contradiction to being in a place of love and needing nothing or it's not a contradiction say it again it, in a lot of pain in people's lives are thinking that they're without that they're lacking that they don't have the house or they don't have scarcity the yeah so in reality on a spiritual sense we really need nothing essentially I mean, if we can no, go to we that do. place. We need, we, of course, well, but we have needs on, on yeah, a spiritual but, sense. On a physical sense, do we need oxygen? Well, of course, yeah. So what's the oxygen of spirituality? Ponder the question. You don't well, have to answer the question immediately, but if you ponder, if every, every, every organism, every, every organism needs something to grow and thrive and survive. It, it, the fact that we talk about the spiritual realm as if it, if, as if it is devoid of need is completely preposterous. 
physics teaches us that every action has an equal reaction. We've known this in, in ancient Eastern cultures when we look at the yin and yang symbols, when we look at the balance symbols um, in, in, in Middle Eastern philosophies, in Eastern philosophies, in ancient Aztec philosophies, there's a balance, there's a representation, right? The <coughs> sacrifice that's made on yeah. behalf of the gods was maybe archaic because they're under, but their understanding was energy requires energy. Okay. Well, you know where I was and going with this, Peter? The, the, you know, if you look at the six human needs, what you really get to is there's vehicles for significance, there's vehicles for certainty, but what it comes down to, tell me mm -hmm. if I got this wrong, is that have the house, have the car, but your fulfillment's not sustainable. The only way it's sustainable is to contribute to others. Hmm. And then it's sustainable when you're, hmm. when you're contributing to others. Hmm. you want an answer sure if you have time <laughs> you're you tell oh, me you uh you told me you had to a, go like 10 minutes I ago did, so. i did i did right now my, my my client was texting me and moved the okay. appointment so we're so okay first obviously wants this conversation to happen it's interesting you know i i don't i i don't i understand where the belief of contribution comes from. Um, I understand how it can be, how somebody who works with, um, works within a system that is completely designed for the acquisition of material, which is what you work in, right? So I understand how you can feel like there's not enough level of contribution there. So that maybe that the, the shift in energy, but here's, here's, something to you know some something for you to consider or for maybe all of us to consider i believe in the i don't believe the yin is more important than the yang so those of us who aspire to contribute again live in the judgment that others aren't contributing and that they must contribute more to solve the balance. Again, that means they don't appreciate those who came before them um, or those who are they're surrounded with. I believe that my destiny to be a brick in the tower in the castle it, it makes me just as important as any other brick. You know, so contribution exists. This is contribution right yeah. now. We're, we're in contribution, but it's no less contribution than my desire to build the number one salon in the world. It was no less, no less contribution. Every person that I touched, I contributed to, even if I didn't say I'm going to contribute to them. 
I contributed. Mm-hmm. Every person, whether it was inspri- inspiring their own personal aspirations to get stronger at their craft, to, to develop their craft. If it was um, somebody who came in and because I did something that allowed them to see themselves in a new way, they now approach the world in a new way. Is my contribution less because I, I did it for material? It's no less to their lives. They still, it still impacted their lives and sent them on their journey in the way that they chose to go. So I don't, I used to believe that, oh, and, and that's what was ingrained in us when we were like contribution, contribution, contribution. Mm. The translation is contribute to me and I'm better at organizing where your contribution goes. And, in religious philosophies, we call that tithing, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't believe, I, 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 my belief, my philosophy is understanding that we're all important. Until we understand that everybody has a unique value to this play, every player is important, every position is important. Um, and whatever, and, and everybody, I, in my belief, everybody is worthy of, um, everybody's everybody is deserving because there's no judgment right so if you eliminate judgment we all not only deserve it we all can acquire unconditional love and we can all share unconditional love and that to me would be the greatest aspiration right i love you unconditionally what if i love you unconditionally and if my greatest capacity is to love unconditionally then whatever you do, I love. Mm. And whatever you do contributes. So within the flawed system of the six human needs, which I understand, but yeah. they're flawed. Okay. They're, they're flawed because they, they mix concepts without understanding the truth. The truth is unconditional for love through forgiveness and forgiveness of self. That's, that's all, everything else. Everything else is a byproduct of that. Everything else is how you decide to play the music. Is it classical? Is it rock? Is it hip hop? But, the, yeah. but to, to you, that's what resonates. What, you know, for some people like I, hip hop does not resonate with me. <laughs> you know, it doesn't <laughs> resonate with me. Yeah. You know, but I am sure some hip hop guys, country Western, which resonates with me, doesn't resonate with them at all. <laughs> you know, like, you know, like give me Hank Williams. Yeah. And I'm happy. Yeah. I'm happy because I hear his contribution in, in every pluck of the guitar, in every resonance in his voice. I say, oh, give me Johnny Cash. I'm like, oh, but, but that's what resonates because that's my experience where hip hop resonates with somebody else because that's in their mind, in their mind, that's experience because the 87% of people who consume hip hop music are white suburban kids who are on their way to art school. You know, like they're not, they're not gangsters from the hood, but in their mind that resonates because they're stuck at that moment, Stephen, they are stuck in their own ghetto. They are stuck in their own position that they feel that they need to break through so they that music resonates with them in that moment. Yeah, okay. That's wow. the power, brother. 
that's wow. the power. Is that, that, I don't know if that answered your question. I, no, it I does because, I mean, that was more, that was a bit of a Tony question because we both experienced that. So I was wondering, I was almost asking you, what do you think of the six human needs? And you told me, so <laughs> that was perfect. I think they're, I think they're a great foundation. Yeah. I think they're a great foundation. They're a great recognition for yeah. understanding how to manipulate, you know, in the NLP portion. But remember, yeah. you said something, every one of the human needs is, is driven by a vehicle, which is driven by those needs, right? Mm. So your desire to contribute, and you've seen this, just fulfills your desire for significance, love, acceptance, certainty, variety, right? So, yeah. so when contribution is being driven by the other four needs, is it really contribution? Yeah, I think the thing that could be, no, I don't think so. I think the thing that could be taken out of those that is that there are needs that give you fulfillment that's sustainable and there are needs that give you fulfillment that's maybe needs to be duplicated because it's not sustainable perhaps that's true well, well right so so you need well you need sustainable and you need foundational yeah right yeah so i think that the four remember like any other product tony's a product right tony's yeah. a product mm. and what does a product need what does a company need? We're both business people. If I develop a shampoo, if my shampoo and conditioner have been doing well for 20 years, people get bored. So I got to develop a new shampoo and conditioner with a new scent that's better than the old one so that, that I can start to attract new people into my beauty care product. Put, your, put my face so, on the cover too. Uh, you know? <laughs> Well, I mean, God, if we could afford the endorsement. No, all right, just let's go. Let's not lose the point here. So you're but the understanding is Tony, Tony developed four of those human needs, right? The four foundations of understanding human motivation. And then he realized, well, once those are fulfilled, then where do we go? And he, his assumption was growth and significance. I mean, growth and contribution. Growth and, He's like, yeah. well, that must be where you go because that's where I'm trying to be. But he was using those ideals as vehicles to get more significance. Hey, we fed a billion people and get up on stage. Oh, I, don't want, I don't want any praise, but by the way, we fed a billion people. <laughs> well, if you don't want any praise, don't like, say it. I don't want to be your guru. I'm going to teach you NLP. Whatever you hear is what I really want, even if it has a negative in front of it. I don't want to be your guru. Translation, I want to be your guru. In yep. NLP, we learn that the negative has no value. All we hear is the command. Okay. Yeah, well, if you're an NLP master practitioner, why would you ever get up on stage and say, I don't want to be your guru? When mm. that's telling the whole group, that's all I want. Holy shit. Yeah. Yep. All right. Well, I'm going to hit you with a question that I don't know if we have time for. But All right. Wait, I, I do have a nine o'clock. So. Oh, that's oh okay. no, no, no. Hit we got to wrap it up. I've got then. nine we minutes. Gotta... I've got nine, min I no, got nine minutes. I was going to say, go. what, what's now your, I got to know. What's your, what's your, what, what has been the darkest, deepest challenge you've faced in your life? What a great question. The darkest, deepest challenge that I've faced. Um, it's simple you know, the loss of my daughter. Oh, um, wow. And that, and you would imagine it was the loss of the daughter, but the deepest, darkest challenge 
um, that I faced was inspired by the loss of my daughter, but it was the protection of the mother and father. It's not, you know, intellectually, we know people die at different times and, you know, you, you pray, you hope that, that they've lived. So you recognize that any salient being has a, has a life expectancy, whatever that is. The emotional impact that that has on the living, um, is your deepest darkest and i feel like i really feel centered in this that that my wife has now created the foundation that with or without me she now has the stability in her life to to progress wow, that's good. but my deepest darkest moment was um in in the in the two and a half years following would she be able to would I be able to, you know, like, I don't think if, if I had given birth to, to my daughter, if I had physically birthed her, I don't know how that would have affected me. It's because it's a different connection. Yeah. Um, wow. And yeah. So, so helping, helping your family heal, that would be my deepest, darkest moment. And there's nothing that can overcome that except love That's and tough. understanding, yeah. you know, but, but you, you, you know, not overcoming the loss, but overcoming life. You know, how do you now move on? Because you're, you're so vested in, as a parent, you're vested in the birthing and raising and then enjoyment of the child. A lot of people right? never do. And they, you, you, most people can't because, and there's no word for it in any language. There's no word for a parent who's lost a child. There's a word for child who's lost parents. It's a, called an orphan, right? There's widow, widower, you know, you oh. lose a spouse, but there's no word in any language for the loss of a child. What, a, what do you call a parent who's lost a child? There's no word in any language. It's too painful. It's too painful. So yeah. you, you, our deepest, darkest challenges are, are, are learning to forgive and to love. And I think that's the one that gets represented over and over. So, for my particular faith, you know, my, my faith in Christianity, you know, that, that's what I gravitate towards just because it, you know, because it gives me that opportunity to be imperfect and still be loved. Yeah. And, to, you know, to, to then to take that model and still love even the imperfections. Because if, if we're God's children, then we should understand that in, in a parent's mind, all their children are beautiful. All their yeah. children have potential. All their children are the greatest. Yeah. So when you look at it, I say, well, if I'm looking at somebody else's children, it, wouldn't it make sense for me to look at them through the eyes of their parent? Is that possible? Is that possible that I could love those people as their parents would, which is as, as unconditionally in the moment of birth as possible. If I can find that, you know, that that's our, my deepest, darkest challenge. And then the you know, and then, you know, maintaining, you know, that. So that's another conversation, but yeah. that, dude, this was awesome. Thank you. This was I, great. Appreciate you I appreciate you having me on. Um, you, 
you know, you, we, should, we could talk. I'd like, there's space. so many things I'd like to talk to you about. So I think they'd be well, we could talk to more. We could talk more tomorrow morning. <laughs> so <laughs> well, let's maybe, just wrap maybe it up. We'll do another one. So, um, yeah. this was we don't Peter, have to do another one. Well, Peter, yeah, Peter Anthony Wynn, you will change the world.com. You are a prolific, yeah. uh, you are a prolific person that makes differences in many people's lives, and I'm glad to know you. Oh, man, I feel the same way. And, and I'm grateful that you took the time to, to speak to me. Stephen, I got to run. Yep. We love you. What, now, now, share the name of your podcast again. From Wall Street to Awakening. So I am grateful. This is Peter Anthony, and I am on From Wall Street to Awakening with host Stephen Fierro. And I am grateful to be a guest of this incredible podcast. From Wall Street to Awakening with Thank Stephen Fierro. We'll Have you a around. great day, Stephen. All right, bye-bye. Bye. Bye.